Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 254, and I'm back in Chestertown, Maryland. This is a part two episode, I guess, because I'm having Dr. Bill Schindler back on the TVTV podcast. So if you recall all the way back at, what was it, episode 235, I had Bill on for the first time. So I think for this episode, you should either pause right now and go back and listen to episode 235 as a primer into this conversation. Or if you want to listen to this one and you want further information, go back and listen to that one. I tried not to repeat questions and repeat information, and there is a lot of really valuable stuff in that conversation. So I think you should check that one out. But... The reason that Bill is back on the podcast now is that just this past week, less than a week from today, his book, Eat Like a Human, came out. So the full title is Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health by Dr. Bill Schindler. Now, I get Bill for about an hour at a time, but I I could sit there and talk to him for 10 hours. He's so knowledgeable on food and nutrition and how cultures around the world cooked in traditional ways that are best for you and your health and your life. I love talking to Bill because he's knowledgeable about all this, but he also has really great stories from his trips around the world. So from the last time that I talked to him, he went back to Mexico, he went to Oaxaca, he went back to Ireland. I think he said in this conversation that he's going back to Ireland again. So it's always really cool to hear about the places that he's been and the new knowledge that he picks up because he's really good at, at telling stories as well. You got to check out the book. So you can go to the link that I'll have in whatever player you're listening to this in and you'll find his social media and you'll find a way to purchase the book. It's really fantastic because what Bill isn't doing is he's not like selling you a program Yes, at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen in Chestertown, they have a kitchen and they sell at the farmer's market and they have amazing sourdough products, but he's not like, hey, this is how you must eat and I'm the one selling you the product that's going to get you to healthy salvation. He's not doing that at all. So I wouldn't want someone on the podcast that's doing that. Um, I feel like when I talk to people, I have a really strong bullshit meter and Bill is the real, he's the real deal. So I was able to go back to what had formerly been the Eastern Shore Food Lab. So when I met him a few months ago, the building was in a stage of transition. It has now fully become the modern Stone Age kitchen. And man, they are, they're blowing up over there in, in, in the best way possible. They're doing food classes, cheese making, sourdough bread making, foraging and then they're doing these these dinners these curated meals that he'll talk about in this conversation and they all sell out and they sell out fast so it's only a matter of time i mean bill from here he's going on to the biggest i don't know rogan and, and, and npr and whatever the biggest stages for platform uh, for for podcasts are he's going to be on all those it's already starting now so uh, you know mark my words you heard him here first, or you heard you heard it here first that he will be 
he'll be on those biggest stages. So join, you know, join the ride now because it's, it's really fascinating. Um, all right. Yeah, that is my praise for Bill. Again, go to the show notes and you'll find links to all his stuff and you will also find a link to my Patreon account. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. So all my Patreon supporters will be getting Bill's book. How cool is that? Uh, in addition to all the other things they've gotten, uh, you can expect that kind of stuff. So there's a link for that and a link to all Bill's stuff. But for now, I'm going to say enjoy this conversation for the second time with Dr. Bill Schindler. I mean, first of all, I want to thank you for being back here. So thanks, My Bill. Pleasure. Thank great you for to coming. See you. It has been deeply inspiring watching your growth. I've known you for a few months. Yeah, it's just been a few months. Absolutely. In that time, this building has transformed your business is transformed. You have a book out. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not on the ride with you, but it kind of feels that way with social media. So it's, it's been really cool. Thank you so much. Listen, I, I love, I love the work that you do. I love, um, I, I appreciate that, um, you, know, you come in and talking to me the first time and then writing that awesome article about Brianna and Rise, you know, the sourdough business and then coming back for this. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I, I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that I get, and it's, it's going to sound like I'm giving you all this praise, but of course, I'm fortunate that I get people who are like often on the cusp of something. Mm. So I had this um, chef on at like the beginning-ish of the pandemic, and she does, it's a bit different from your topic, but she does vegan food. Mm. She's an Indian-American chef, and she does Indian vegan food. She just released a cookbook, and it is like her spotlight and her influence and her reach is just booming right now. Mm. And, you know, it's not because of this podcast, but I've been able to do that a lot because eventually people who do go on to grow really big grow to a point where they're on NPR and Rogan and they don't, um, they don't need to be on TV, TV anymore. So I'm not saying this just because you're sitting here, but like, I really think you're on the cusp of something. Um, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, al already, like I saw the Katie Couric show mentioned you, you mentioned the doctors, like this is, this is exciting stuff. Yeah, it sure is. It's, yeah. it's busy. It's been a good way. Yeah. A positive way. And, I, and I think we mentioned this last time we spoke, one of the, my wife and I met working in a restaurant and we worked so well together for so many years. And then well, you know, we're both in education, so she, uh, she, her specialty was in special ed, and I taught high school, and then I taught uh, colleges in college since then. We just would get up in the morning, kiss each other, and go off in our different spaces, and then can't wait to get back together with the whole family. And I know a lot of people are like that as mm -hmm. well, but we just worked so well together. So it was our dream to be able to find a way to do that again, and we tried to make it work here for the past, oh, about five or six years. It just, it was too many, uh, hurdles to make it work. Um, but when we were able to branch out on our own, um, you know, we were able to do that. And I, and I have to tell you, I know you're sitting here talking to me, um, but it, it, none of this would be possible without the team that she and I have mm. built together. And, and plus the family as well. I mean, the kids are amazing and, and we brought everybody into it. I will say one thing that's, um, this, this book, this business, everything is a result of decades of trying out how to first feed myself and then more importantly how to feed my family since mm. when we started building our family um and since 
that growth, you know, we, we've hit this, like you said, in the past few months, everything's just, we're, we're building our team here. We've hired people. We've transformed the building. You know, we're putting out more food. The book is just uh, released. I'm having a difficult time feeding my family. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so busy that, you know, and, and I don't want to be that mechanic who, you know, he does great work with cars, but he's driving the junker around town all the time. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to do that. So it's, it's actually taking a lot of work. I mean, we're thrilled to share it with everybody. That's the, the whole point of what we're doing, but I, it, it, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to have authors on and I always see like the, the press tour and the book tour go, I mean, it's necessary. It goes on for a while. Um, yeah. And I guess you're still this last week. It just came out, right? Just came out Tuesday, yeah, a couple days ago. Yeah. Um, so everyone who supports me on Patreon got a copy. <laughs> so thank you, Patreon supporters. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very look, cool. They can uh, look forward to that. Actually, this one's for my dad, um, who's a Patreon supporter. So uh, yeah, I will do my best not to like rehash everything from the first conversation. Sure. I'll tell people there is a primer for this one. So go. It was episode two thirty five. Um, so 20 episodes ago, but I'll build on that. So let's tell people, I guess, if you want to give a synopsis or to sort of sum up, um, you know, the point and, and sort of like the mission of uh, Eat Like a Human, the book that just came out. So, and we talked a little bit about this the last time. First off, you did 20 interviews since then? Yeah. and, and That's pretty impressive. And I, I haven't talked about this on the podcast. My partner lost a parent like very suddenly, so... I took a month off. So like I did nothing, no writing, no podcast. So, uh, yeah, I love doing this bill. <laughs> You're super busy too. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And, and I'm sorry about that as well. I Thanks, know we talked about it earlier. The, the quick version, and we can dive into any parts that you want to dive into a little bit deeper. The, the, fir- the, the quick version is that I have had this incredibly unhealthy relationship with food almost my entire life. Um, from, poor health to obesity to poor body image and just this, you know, food is something that is supposed to nourish you in all senses of the word, biologically and emotionally. And it never did that for me up until recent times. And it was very important to me to try to fix, I thought I had to fix myself, right, to try to figure out what I should be eating. And then, like I mentioned earlier, um, to try to find out the best way to f- nourish my family so they didn't have to go through the same sorts of things that I did and just feed them in the, in the most nourishing way possible. And I have really been able to take all the different parts of my life and my research from being an archaeologist and an anthropologist and then more recently a, a trained chef and a father and a husband and put all those things together and figure out a way to create a food system, I don't want to say diet, right, a food system for my family that is simultaneously as nourishing, ethical, and sustainable as possible. Now, I certainly don't want to even pretend that I have all the answers, not even close. Mm. But what I what I do like to say is I think I'm at least asking the right questions and that and that um, and and finding really unique ways to try to answer some of those questions. So this book is a result of literally a lifetime of different threads of research looking at ancestral diets, uh, traditional diets of, of different people around the world, trying to take that information and fuse it with modern ways of approaching food and make it all work for a modern American family in living in, well, we're kind of a rural area, but a suburban area, trying to just make it all work and Mm. not have it be this overly oppressive, I can only eat this and I can never eat this sort of approach. Uh, I wanted it to be accessible, meaningful, and relevant to make it actually work. So the book is, it starts off with a look at the diets that built us as a species. And it's, and 
and it's not just not another one of these sort of paleo books where the entire thing is we need to eat like cavemen. Um, it's actually about eating like a human. And so there is there is a, a little bit of prehistory and history. I, I hope my my point was to try to get it across in a really accessible, fun way. So we use a lot of stories, a lot of travel from the family, a lot of um, really cool interpretations of the archaeological record uh, to sort of lay the foundation. And then every chapter after that is uh, a different food category, um, whether it be – it starts off with things like animals and plants and uh, grains and dairy and maize. And then it starts to branch off into some things that are a little bit more fringe now but were never fringe in the past. Mm. Things like there's, there, there, there's a chapter on uh, earth, ash, and charcoal, and there's a chapter on insects. And then we bring it all together at the end on, uh, and the chapter title is Sugar, uh, which I think we needed to end it on because that is, in my mind, one of the, the the worst drugs on the planet, but one that we have such a confusing relationship with that we needed to to address it. It's not as it's very easy to just say we shouldn't be eating any sugar whatsoever because we have no biological need. For, humans have no biological need for sugar at all. But one of the things that I've realized after having um, spent so much time trying to find a way to nourish my family, not just feed them, nourish them, is that that nourishment is not just biological. It, it comes with that emotional piece as well. So even though biologically we don't need any sugar, emotionally and culturally sugar is a part of our lives and we need to address it. So how can we do it in the most nourishing way possible? So I hope that was a okay quick summary. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And what I really like about it is like you talk about being an educator. It feels like you're educating people with the book. You know, it's not, well, here's the program that you have to prescribe and here's the protein powder that I sell that you must use if you're going to be healthy. Um, so I quite enjoy that. And I've, I've worked for 10 years in the charter school world and I've, I finally stepped away and I'm not going back. I, I'm in a school now that for like the first time, it feels like a breath of fresh air. I'm like, wow, this is, feels quite amazing. But I am a bit critical of the educational model that we use overall. I'm not like, it's not a political debate. I'm just like, through my experiences, it feels like the old like industrial model that like everything else in society has sort of uh, progressed and advanced and is um, evolving, mm -hmm. but a lot of education hasn't. And I, I was thinking, reading through the book, like, why wouldn't we even have something about like real nutrition and, and lifestyle in school. We take health class uh, in New York. It's one semester of high school and then it's over and it certainly doesn't delve into this realm. So um, my, I don't have the answers, I guess, but my idea is like, I think it needs a complete overhaul. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, alongside like financial literacy and things like that, like this would be appropriate to be teaching young people who are the ones who are like more likely to be making or food choices. 100%. Yeah. And you know, and you talk about that prescribed part. And I agree with literally 100% with everything that you said. One of the things that this book doesn't do, and it's on purpose, is say, you should eat this, 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 and this. Um, and, you know, there's so many of these diet books out there that say, okay, week one, you eat this, week two, you eat this, you know, you eat this at 10 a.m., you eat this at 2 p.m. Um, it's not that. And it's not that on purpose for several different reasons. But uh, one reason is this book is not necessarily, although we approach it some, about what you should be eating. It's about how you should be eating. In other words, what kinds of approaches, what kind of things you need to do in your kitchen to make the foods that you're eating as safe and nourishing and delicious as, as, as possible. And because it's approaching it that way, 
it's not this sort of, hey, everybody needs to eat nothing but vegetables. Hey, everybody needs to eat nothing but meat, right? And it's not a carnivore sort of vegan debate. It, it, nowhere really in there at all is that. In fact, you could take some of the lessons from this book and if you're a vegan, continue to be a vegan, just be a healthier vegan. Mm. Or if you do nothing but eat, you know, if you're if you're a complete carnivore, you can do that in a more nourishing and ethical and sustainable way as well. So it's not a, hey, you need to change everything today and do this. And if you don't do it, you know, everything's going to hell. It's exactly the opposite. And it also, I, I, I'm hoping I got to, certainly my family and I are a little bit crazy with the way that we approach things. And I think I talked about it last time, but there was a year where every food that we ate was either forged by us or hunted or fished or, or butchered made entirely from scratch in the house, all of our cheese, all of our butter, all of our everything, um, which was over the top. I was lucky enough to have had enough time around food to know how to do it. And I was lucky enough because of my position as a professor at Washington College to have the freedom and flexibility to have the time to be able to do it. And I understand that a lot of people have all sorts of obstacles to be able to do that, even if they wanted to. But even though I, I pulled it off for a year, it was too much. I mean, the family, even though biologically we were in incredible health, emotionally, we were like, we just wanted it to stop. It was just too much pressure, too much constraints. We were thinking about food way too much. It was over the top. So it isn't the kind of book where at the end of it, it's like, okay, you have to do all this within the next week or else you might as well not do it at all. It's like, no, if all you do is make sourdough pancakes on a Sunday mm. instead of using a box mix, you're taking a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think one of the examples you used is like think about all of the sandwiches a school school age child will eat over the course of their school career. And if you just had if you just made a loaf of sourdough a week and like that was the one step you made so that at least like they're having a, a fermented bread instead of I don't know, white wonder bread or whatever it is kids are eating, like that is like a, a fairly easy step that's not really going to like transform your life like in terms of like the effort that you need to put into it right but it can transform theirs after the end of being in school for 12 years right exactly years. yeah and and that's really the other the other point there's so many there, there's a lot of information in this book about how to make cheese from scratch and how to make bread from scratch and how to make pate and those sorts of things from scratch but there's also a lot of and, and some of that is some people might look forward to that and some people might say you know what i don't really cook that much at all now so that's way too big of a step, mm -hmm. and that's fine. There's things there how to make sourdough pancakes, which which takes a total of about seven minutes to do start to finish, and uh, different ways of making even things like French fries, which are incredibly accessible, but just doing it in a more a more nourishing way. The most important thing, first of all, is that anything that you're doing has to be working towards a good a good goal, and to me, that is one that's uh, a food system that's nourishing, sustainable, and ethical. But the other thing is you have to be able to stick to it, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to, 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 to make sure whatever you start, you continue to do. But the third thing, which people often forget, is it has to – it doesn't have to be one big change that happens all of a sudden and then only happens every month. It has to happen – you know, smaller changes that happen every single day or every single week are the ones that build up over time. Our food system is so screwed up that the bad things in it build up over days and weeks and months and years. And by the time we're 30, 40, 50 years old, we, we, we feel the effects of it. Changing and reversing that isn't, 
you know, the big thing that we do once a month, it's, it's those same sort of incremental, very slow, very small changes that happen every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. So something as simple as changing out the bread that your kids are eating for the healthiest version possible, which I believe is a true real sourdough bread, will, you're not going to see a change in a week. But you're going to – and you may never notice that there is a change. It's there. You'll never notice it because your kids are just, you know, living a healthier and, and, and you know, more, more fulfilling life. But by the time they're, they graduate from high school, you have made an incredible difference mm. just by making that one change. I'm going to come back to fries in a second. <laughs> um, but my brain goes all over the place when I'm reading. And when I was reading this, I was thinking like – I think we our society is kind of sick right now, and we are obsessed with categorizing people and like finding some type of group membership. So, you know, if you're if you eat like a vegetarian, you're not just a vegetarian; you are part of the vegetarian community, or you're part of the vegan community, or you're part of the carnivore community. But I was even thinking like, and I was going back two episodes because I had a hunter on from the Poconos. Okay. And he is a black man who is trying to get more people of color into the lifestyle and the hobby and, and obtaining your own food source because often it's been marketed primarily towards white folks. Sure. But we've even like politicized food to the sense that like, I don't know, likely most people hear Hunter and they think like, conservative voter. And then they go from there to like, they make assumptions about their uh, education level and their perceived biases or people here vegan and they think, well, this person must be left or far left or they're this or they're that. And it's just so strange to me. Like, cause I was thinking about you and reading through the book and I was like, yeah, it is hard to sort of put Bill in a bucket. But even more so, I was, I don't know, just feeling kind of sad for the fact that like we can't even come to a consensus about like what is best for us in the planet in terms of food, because we're so obsessed with like pitting each other against each other. I don't I, right. maybe that's, I don't know if you ever think about that. But. I, I think about it all the time, especially uh, with the sort of vegan carnivore um, uh, debate polarization. I mean, you said, you said it exactly right. Uh, let me start off with this quickly. So a couple weeks ago, I was three weeks ago, I was in Ireland for this amazing mm. food event called food on the edge. I was supposed to speak at it last year and it was canceled because of COVID. And then it was, um, it was rescheduled for this year. And I mean, they bring some of the most amazing, they've had everybody like Renee Redzepi from Noma. I mean, they have pe mm. people from all over the world to, to um, speak at this conference. And I was so honored to be there. So upset that it got canceled last year, but proud to be there this year, uh, excited. And there was a, um, there's, there's two brothers that live in Dublin and we, and we knew who they were because when we lived in Dublin, when I was on sabbatical, actually writing the book a few years ago and the family was there, we would go on this amazing hike between uh, Bray and Greystone. It was right along the coast. And then we'd end that they have this vegan restaurant called The Happy Pear. And we would eat there at the end of the hike every time. And it's a vegan restaurant. You can imagine, like, why would I go to a vegan restaurant? Mm. Um, they had great food. They had great food. And the two brothers, it's called The Happy Pear, like P-E-A-R, but it's a play on words because they're the happy, you know, the happy brothers. Um, they spoke at the conference and they had a cookbook for sale there. And I was so excited to get this cookbook because just being around uh, them, it just says just a great memories for the family and the hikes and all this. And I got it for my wife and I said something to them. And they know who I am and they know I'm a, um, I, I, I truly believe that the most nourishing diet possible has a lot of animal 
plant-based foods in it. Uh, and as you know, I'm a nose to tail, 100%. Um, they also know that my uh, approach is one that I believe is ethical and sustainable. Um, they have the same goals as me. They just apply it, you know, they, they go about trying to get reach those goals differently. Mm. So they eat absolutely no animals and I, you know, I include a lot of animals, but just all of it as sustainable as possible. All of it. So anyhow, I, I never had spoken to them before, and I didn't know um, what their – how they would react to me coming up to them. I was listening. I was like, guys, listen. Um, I, I, I know you – can you sign this book for my wife? <laughs> they said, sign it? We'll do a video for her. And he grabs the phone out of my hand, and the two of them do this really cool uh, video for for Christina. And then, you know, we the, the two, uh, me and the two of them spent some time together over the next couple of days, and we're supposed to connect when I go back in January. And it was such a great um, – I mean, they are the, the loudest, in a good way, loudest, most vocal vegans, I think, in Ireland. Um, the, and – they truly believe in what they're doing, 100%. That interaction I had with them, I think, should be the model mm. for how somebody that is very animal-based and somebody who is animal-based for the right reasons and somebody who is vegan for the right reasons, how they we should communicate and how we should deal with one another. Vegan – so first off, I have incredible respect, incredible respect for vegans for a lot of different reasons – uh, for what they do and why they do it, I don't agree with. I don't. I don't think the way that they apply their approach to being a vegan is as nourishing as it can be. Um, and I also have some questions about whether that is the most sustainable way to go about um, dealing with our resources. But I have great respect for why they're choosing to do lead the life that they're choosing. I mean, it's very honorable and it's it's amazing, right? It's the same things that I feel are very important for the way that I approach including animals in my diet. Mm. Um, and I, what I really think the, the only – we're not going to get anywhere with this sort of polarization. And, and the categorizing is insane. And I will never tell anybody what they should be eating ever. I'll answer any questions somebody has, but I'll, I'll never say you need to eat this and you need to do that. So I don't think either camps should be doing that. What I think should happen and what, I, what I'd love to do is bring us together – and I know this sounds insane, but bring us together. Like if, if, if truly, if you are a vegan because – for one of the reasons you're a vegan is because you want the um, animals to be treated well and you want to be as sustainable as possible. And if I'm approaching the way that I use animals because I want – to be as ethical, have these animals treated as ethically as possible. And I want to have a food system that is sustainable as possible. Then let's come together and have a conversation. Let's come together and fight this battle because there are terrible things being done to animals. These, these huge, you know, CAFOs, these concentrated animal feedlot operations are horrible, horrible. That kind of meat should never be in our food mm. system. Let's come together and together let's fight that system. If you don't want to eat meat, fine. And I'm not going to tell you to eat meat, but help me change the meat industry for the better. Because by turning your back on the meat industry, you're not really accomplishing much. I mean, you're not actually, you certainly, you're not partaking in a, you know, you're not paying into a system that you don't believe in, which, which I completely get, but you're not really, I don't think transforming it as powerfully and as quickly as if we joined forces 
together. Now, certainly, um, this wouldn't work with people who are vegan just because they think it's the cool thing to do for a couple months or whatever. But people who are vegan because they truly believe in it and people – and this wouldn't work for people who are carnivores because all they want to do is eat hamburgers and not feel mm. guilty about it or they don't care if they're just going to you know a, a fast food joint and getting hamburgers because their waist looks fine. and no, It wouldn't work with them either. But somebody who's approaching the food system and animals in their diets in a way that is – they, because they truly believe they can do it in a nourishing, ethical, sustainable way, should join forces with vegans and vegetarians. And I know it sounds insane, but if we want to make change, that's the kind of things we have to do. Yeah, I, I, I can't add to that. I mean, <laughs> preach, man. <laughs> like, um, I wanted to ask you something about Ireland, though. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm in New York. I grew up on Long Island. On the east end of Long Island, they are... Uh, there's some companies that are doing a lot of kelp farming. Mm. And I thought I saw on your recent trip to Ireland that you did something with kelp, and I was just curious about that. Yeah, so seaweed, I love seaweed. Seaweed's amazing. Um, and seaweed is a very, for those of us who have access to a coastline, and it needs to be a rocky coastline. It can't be a sandy coastline. Like you can't really get much seaweed, say, in New Jersey. But there are places in New York and certainly New England you could you can you can harvest seaweed. One of the, if you have access to seaweed, it is a very very safe way to to forage. If it's easy to identify seaweeds and there's not much out there that would harm you. So um, I, I like the accessibility to it. And Ireland has a really interesting relationship with seaweed. Uh, first off, at um, in, with food in general. Because of the during the famine, um, a lot of traditional foodways were lost, and those that carried on through the famine were rejected after the famine was over. Because you know you just associated hunger and death and illness with these foods for you know for years, and then all of a sudden when you had access to other foods, you sort of rejected that for for decades. In fact, an incredibly long period of time, and now. Um, in the past several years, Ireland is really Ireland has amazing resources and amazing chefs, amazing food producers, and they're just starting to to um, reengage with their diet with their own uh, culinary past. And one of those things is seaweed. So people, I mean, Ireland's an island, so there's a lot of access to coastline, a lot of access to seaweed. Um, and now there's there's not there's seaweed foragers that are employed with different food uh, companies with different restaurants. There's uh, a few different um, producers that have set up to um, harvest and sell seaweed commercially as well. And not only is it is it nutritious, but I mean it adds an incredible flavor and texture. There's a seaweed that uh, grows in certain well certain parts of Europe anyhow in in, in the North Atlantic, but that, I know a couple of places in Ireland where it grows. It's a small seaweed. It looks a little bit hairy almost, and they call it the truffle of the sea because it Whoa. smells and tastes like truffles. It's oh. it's actually difficult to harvest because it's so close. To, you know, it, it doesn't come out from the rock very far, so um, that it's attached to. But my God, it's amazing! And just a little bit, and you can you can do a lot of different things with it. But it smells and tastes like truffles. And I guess because it's harvested at sea. Well, obviously, if you're foraging. You're not using any farmland, but because if if they can create these farms out in the water, you're not doing anything. You're not depleting the soil here like you would be with like monocrops and stuff like that. 
Sure, I'm sure, but you got to be careful, just like anything else. Huh. I mean, we, we like to jump to another fish species or another crop species or another something mm-hmm. because, oh, that, this is more sustainable. And then all of a sudden, unfortunately, we apply all the, the nasty ways that we, 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 mm-hmm. we farm and harvest stuff. And then all of a sudden that gets – we've done it with quinoa. We've done it with amram. We've done it with so many different things. Um, we have to be careful because there are, first of all, seaweed – I, I know we just think of, okay, it's grown in the ocean. It has seasons, just like plants on land mm. do. So there's a seasonality aspect to it. There's also a sustainability aspect to it. There are ways of harvesting seaweed that are sustainable and actually help the seaweed do very, very well. Not mm. only is it sustainable, but it's regenerative, really. Mm. Um, but there are also ways to completely destroy kelp beds and everything else. So we, we do have to make sure we, we do it properly. That's a really good point. We love to run with a trend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and okay. when something gets labeled sustainable, then we just run with it and we don't think about it anymore and move on to something else. As that, Meanwhile, that resource is getting completely depleted. Right. So it does have to be done the proper way. Point. Right. Um, all right. I said I'd come back to fries and I'll come back to fries. Because okay. I was so happy to see you talk about fried chicken wings in here because, <laughs> like, honestly, <laughs> there isn't much better than that. Like... I think that's something important too in all this is that like at the end of the day, like people are, people are people and people eat for taste. And like you talked about like, yeah, the food has to be good too. So the connection I wanted to make, and and I'll say that there are things in the first conversation that I'm glossing over that are in the book, but people should go listen, like such as like the, the toxicity of a lot of plants and how many need to be detoxified. And we're alluding to that, but I don't recall us specifically talking about oils and cooking oils and oils that are derived from vegetables and seeds and nuts. Um, In my own reading, I've read you need to largely avoid oils. But I wanted to talk to you about two in particular uh, because they're often billed as healthy and I just am a bit ignorant on the topic. So olive oil and coconut oil. Mm. Um, so I guess like the larger topic is is oil and cooking oils and how you should be cooking with oils. And then specifically, if you had any knowledge and information to share on those two, olive and, and coconut. Oh, 100%. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I, I will never tell anybody what they should do. But if somebody says, what can I do right now to make a, a huge change? The first thing I would tell you to do is go into your kitchen and take any industrial nut and seed oil you have, any of them, and throw them out. Mm. Or put them in the garage where they belong, because many of them started as actually lubricants for machines. They are oh. not, and don't, and don't <laughs> feel bad about throwing away or wasting food because it's not food. Um, You're including olive oil now? No. Okay. okay. So industrial nut and seed oils. Okay. Which means anything but, I mean, for, for, for common things, anything but avocado, olive, or the one the one exception is coconut oil. Okay. So um, we do use olive oil, avocado oil, and coconut oil in our house and here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Now, one thing to remember is olive oil and avocado oil are not are not nut or seed oils. They are fruit oil. Mm. So that the, the oil, the fat comes from their fruit. Uh, what's nice about that is it doesn't it's, it's about the processing of the oil that it, it gives up its fat so easily. It doesn't require intensive heat, intensive pressure, or a whole bunch of chemicals. Okay. B- but that only counts for extra virgin olive oil. So if you went to an olive oil press or manufacturer, what you would see is they'd bring in a massive amount of olives. They do a pressing, you know, they press some, give it a little bit of pressure. And that, ol- and that oil that comes off first is the extra virgin olive oil. That stuff's amazing. 
and then they um, chop it up a little bit, they press it again with a whole bunch of pressure. That's the next one. And then there's three or four. And then finally at the very end, they hit it with all sorts of chemicals that allow the, the oil to come out uh, more easily, the last little bits of it. And then um, and that's that. So anything that's not extra virgin olive oil would not end up in my house or, or here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen at all because um, it – but extra virgin olive oil is great. Avocado oil is great. And coconut oil, it is a nut, but it sort of goes in that same – it doesn't require a lot of – I mean, you guys know, it doesn't require a lot of uh, pressure and no heat whatsoever and certainly no chemicals in order to extract those fats mm. from the coconut meat. So it's a very um, unrefined, not overly processed fat, which is great. Um, the types of fats that are in it are also not that bad for us and, and some would consider good for us. So that's nice as well. But the caveat here is that we don't really cook with them. We use them in cold things. Um, a little bit of olive oil we would use in maybe a bread like a focaccia. Um, but other than that, we use them for things like dressings or mayonnaises or um, we use the coconut oil in, um, in things that are really cold or, or room temperature like we make these kind of cricket powerball things and mm. we use the coconut fat in there, coconut oil. Um, so that's that. Anything else that's li- – so and then one thing I think we should mention is the difference between oil and fat is – well, the types of fats that are in it. But the, the main line is that oils are liquid at room temperature and fats are solid at room temperature, which which – says a lot about the amount of uh, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, saturated fats that are in there, right? Saturated fats are obviously um, uh, more solid at room temperature and at higher temperatures, which also speaks to where uh, I really want to get to this, the healthiest fats possible for humans and the fats that have been in our diets for literally millions of years are the saturated fats and they come from animal sources. Um, it's nice that the coconut oil, if, you've, if you have coconut oil in your house, um, you pro- it's right on that verge of being called an oil or a fat because in the winter, it's usually solid in your cupboard. And in the summer, it could start to be a little bit liquidy, right? Yeah. It's right on the edge there, which means it has a lot of saturated fats in it. Um, this, uh, and I know most of us listening, especially anybody that, you know, I'm 48 years old, anybody even near my age that grew up in the 70s and the 80s and even the early 90s, that word saturated fat is a demon, yeah. right? Um, finally, the American Heart Association finally in the past year has started to back off of its stance and, and suggest that saturated fats can actually be good for us. And if you, tra- if you trace the uh, government reg- uh, recommendations for removing saturated fats from our diets and, and the increase in coronary heart disease, the increase in obesity, the increase in a lot of other uh, related illnesses that many people relate to that switch, something was wrong in those recommendations. You know, we switched from incredible butter, which has been in our diet for probably at least 4,000, but probably closer to 6,000 years, to margarine, which has been in our diet for, you know, less than 100. We see all kinds of issues. So we uh, here's the quicker answer to the larger question that you asked. Animal fats have been in our diets for 3.4 million years, period. We know this for sure. We have archaeological evidence of long bones where the marrow exists, busted open, and the only reason they would be busted open is to extract the marrow out of the inside. So we've had marrow in our diets for 3.4 million years. We've had um, other fats in our diets, we think, for at least 2 million, if not more years, other animal fats. And then we've had nut and seed oils in our diets for a little over 100. Mm. 
And if you really, and, and then if you look at the health of humans, not, not to blame it all on industrial nut and seed oils, but they, I mean, the amount of it's in our diets, especially our kids' diets today, really says a lot. There's been our diets for a little over 100 years. For some reason, um, the media and the food industry has been able to make the argument, and it's a, an erroneous one, that these are the healthier oils for us. They're not. They're terrible. They're, they're, most of them are rancid by the time we get to them, uh, and then if we heat them up, they get even worse. So my take on fat is this. We have avocado and olive oil and coconut oil that we use for cold things. Olive oil is amazing for certain kinds of dressings, but it's a little bit strong for mayonnaise, a little bit strong of a flavor, so we make our mayonnaise from avocado oil. Uh, coconut oil is good for some cold things as well. Um, if I would never fry, I wouldn't even fry an egg in olive oil, but if you want to put it in a bread or you want to do something where there's some heating mm. of it, it's fine, or put it, you know, pasta with it or something, fine, that's great. But if I'm heating something and, and cooking it at a high temperature, I exclusively use animal fats, high quality butter, lard, tallow, schmaltz, and marrow. Those are the fats that we rely on. And in fact, those have been in our diets, like I said, for millions of years, and I don't track them. I don't, you know, I don't have a calculator out. I don't have a notebook out. I don't say I've eaten this many grams of this fat. We don't track them. We just, if it's there, we eat it. The cool thing about those fats are, I believe they're incredibly nourishing, but they also are satiating, which means, you know, that, that sense of that sense of completeness. I don't even want to say fullness. That's when you get if you've eaten a meal where you're like, you know what? That was the perfect amount of food. Like that was it. Like you're not hungry, you're not bloated, you're like, god, that was perfect. That's satiated. That fat is respond those fats are responsible for that feeling of satiation. The other thing is the flavor. That's where the flavor comes from is uh, from those. And it, and it makes sense. If we are hardwired to eat a certain kind of food and that food tastes really really good and we feel satiated and we feel better at the end of it, it all makes complete sense. And you talk about in the book how easy it is to save the animal fats from the animal proteins that you're cooking and then to reuse that as the, the cooking oil. Yeah, I mean, we, we here, we render a lot of fat here and you can mm -hmm. buy rendered lard, you can render lard at home, which is fine, but you don't really even have to. I mean, if you're cooking, and one of the other things I talk about a lot in this book is we need to get away from just buying chicken breast, right? We should buy a chicken or right. we should get away from buying pork loin. We should buy a shoulder of the, of, 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 of the, of the pig or bring a whole half a big home if you want to do it. But whatever it is, if we're looking to get larger, there's a lot of advantages to getting larger or entire animals. Um, one is the price is cheaper because you're doing all oh, the value add at home, not paying somebody else to do that. That's number one. Number two, I think there's a huge benefit to you and your family members remembering that something died for you to be nourished, right? And when you just bring a chicken breast home, it's hard to make that connection. But when you bring a whole chicken home and it looks like a chicken and there's bones and mm. there's skin, it's very easy to make that connection. And that's a connection we need to have back in our homes. And number three, it's not that, hey, now I have this chore getting this meat off and then I gotta find a way to discard the rest of this animal. Like, no, you have you know, six or seven or eight different things you can do now because you've brought the entire animal home. Like you take all those bones and you make bone broth with it. You have all that fat and you can either render it or use it immediately. Or, you know, the easiest thing to do is, listen, bring that chicken home. If you want to eat chicken breasts, cut the chicken breasts off and cook them, throw the rest of the chicken in a pot with some water and turn it on and, and, and leave it and forget about it. What happens is not only do you make amazing bone broth, you have meat that you can just pull off the bones, but all the fat 
separates on its own, rises to the top, and you can skim that off, keep it right next to your oven, and use it anytime you want to fry something. And I'm telling you, the best way to eat a fried egg is to cook it in chicken fat. And I know it might sound a little bit morbid, but it is the most delicious way to cook an egg. About 10 years ago, I went to, uh, we did this like baseball road trip with my friends, and we mm-hmm. went to a bunch of stadiums, like northern Midwest, and like the, kind of like the Rust Belt. And we went to Chicago, and there was a place called Hot Dogs that did, like, all sorts of uh, hot dogs and, like, eclectic meats in in tube form. And they had, like, a rattlesnake hot dog and stuff like that. But they were, like, very famous for doing duck fat fries. And I remember Mm. the first time we went there, it absolutely blew our minds. We were like, how do you you ever go back to, to, I don't know, McDonald's or something like that after this? Like, these are so good. You know, the only thing that McDonald's, I think, did right, and they stopped doing it, I think it was 1995, they used to fry in tallow. They used to fry in beef fat. Really? And there is, it, this, this speaks to the power of several things. One is money, one is uh, a multinational uh, uh, corporation like McDonald's and, and the power that they have. There was one man, uh, and again, I forget the exact details and I forget his name. There was one man that had suffered from multiple heart attacks, I believe, and he was a uh, incredibly rich, and he bought. It was at a time period when American Heart Association and everybody was suggesting that saturated fats are incredibly bad for you. And he was convinced he was on a personal mission to get McDonald's to stop frying in animal fat. And you know, it went to court. I mean, it was it was horrible. He was on talk shows. I mean, he was on like major some of the biggest talk shows at the time. And anyhow, McDonald's said fine. And they stopped frying in, in tallow, which is beef fat, and they started frying in industrial nut and seed oils, which is what they still do today, and the rest of the world followed in suit. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult to go to places, even in, in Central or South America, where frying in, in animal fat was such a major part of the culture. It is, you can, you know, you can go to small villages and have it still done in maybe somebody's home, but, you know, you, you can't even find a restaurant that, that would do it anymore. The entire world copied that. Um, to the point where it, it, duck fat in a really nice restaurant or a place like you're talking about, because it's sort of a, of a kind of niche thing now, you, you can find that sometimes. Mm. I found a couple of, they call them chippers, um, in, a, in a Ireland where you would get like a fish and chips kind of thing where they'll do the fries in lard. But it's very, very rare that you find it. We fry exclusively in, in animal fat here, lard, lard or tallow. But, it's, but the other thing is it's, it's incredibly expensive too. Yeah. Because you don't have all the subsidies with the seed oils. The corn. On yeah. I'll, I brought this up last time, but I'll, I'll build on it because it still like continues to rear its ugly head. So actually, of the episodes I've done within the past six months, the most comments and questions I get are on the one that I did with you. Or people, really? Man, that one was super interesting. Like I never even knew that about the toxicity of plants and this and that. But you, you hit on something there that I think is super important is that like some of these things such as um, labeling saturated fats as like this evil and this thing that causes heart disease, that was touted by doctors. And th- there, there are still doctors today who will say things that refute some of the information in your book. And again, 100%. I know you're not saying you must do this, but I'm even surprised. Like I talked to a doctor recently who said to me the best thing – I'll, maybe I'll get into it in a bit, but I had like an issue, uh, a health issue. And he was like, the best thing you can do is eat a completely plant-based diet. And 
outside of the issue I was having, it I had EOE. It's um, it's essentially like internal eczema. It's mm. it's um, it's heartburn, but it's very specifically related. They think to allergens that I have, and I had like silent reflux for years, and so I had some damage and whatever. Um, but there was a doctor who was like, yeah, you should go in, in entirely plant-based. And I was like, that's weird because outside of this issue, I just had blood work and my blood work was like perfect. And th- the doctor literally said to me, other doctor, like, were you a division one athlete? I'm like, no, <laughs> like I take care of myself and I know based on how I feel what I should be eating and how my body responds. So I'm saying a lot here, but I guess it's so hard to sort of parse out what is accurate. And I brought that up to you last time, but I guess like, what is your recommendation for that? Is it try out uh, a certain lifestyle and a certain diet and, and see how your body responds or, or like go get blood work and see what that looks like. What is, I guess maybe sort of like the steps somebody should take to, to, belief or like really finding the thing that works for them. Wow. That is an awesome, I love the way you phrased it too. That is a fantastic question. First off, if you looked at the amount of nutritional training that most medical doctors need, you'd be incredibly surprised at how little Mm. is there. Um, And you also have to remember that when what they're getting trained on is incredibly biased, right? It's it, it's 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 a representation of whatever the the trend is in food and what the FDA is saying, what the AHA is saying, and 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 as we know now, I mean, what what they said in the '70s, it was different than the '80s and the '90s, and now they're refuting over every 30, 30 years worth of what their recommendations were. But meanwhile, we're dealing with doctors right now that were trained in the '70s and the '80s and the '90s, right? So. Um, Here's my recommendation. Like I said, there's several reasons why I am not telling anybody what they should be eating. One reason is because I don't think humans need an answer to that question. Hmm. Did we did we talk about the sensual thing last time? I don't, I'm, if we did, I think it's worth bringing okay, up. Cool, cool. I think this is a great way to frame it. There are three parts of a human's life, three types of experiences that we have that are truly sensual. And when I mean sensual, I mean using every every sense that we have uh, is fired. So we use taste and smell and sight and sound and all of it all at the same time. One is sex. One is safety. And the third is nourishment. And it is not a surprise that these are truly nourishing experiences and because the, th- the thing that we need to do as a species, like every other species on the planet – the only thing that we need to do is reproduce viable offspring. In other words, we need to have babies and those babies need to have babies and those babies need to have babies. And if we do that right, our species survives. If we screw it up somewhere, then we become extinct. And the way we make that happen is we have to make sure that the female members of our species are incredibly healthy and incredibly nourished when, and then they have to become pregnant. They have to be safe and nourished throughout the pregnancy to give birth to a healthy child. That child needs to be nourished and needs to stay safe until they reach childbearing age. And that pattern continues and continues and continues. So um, 
if we do them right, they feel incredibly good. If we do any of those th three things wrong, they feel incredibly bad. And it's not a surprise, right? It should be that way. It's millions of years of evolution have created those responses in us, All right? So we'll take the sex and the safety piece aside for just a minute and just let's talk about, talk about the food. Other animals don't hire nutritionists and doctors to tell us what we should be eating. Or, oh, sorry, what they should be eating. And they do a really good job of figuring out what they should be eating. And it makes sense. Humans, though, are, are different in a lot of different ways. One is we have, we are incredibly disconnected from where our food comes from and how it's prepared. So we're not, we don't have that close connection uh, very well um, with our food to help make informed decisions. Plus, we're not in tune necessarily with our bodies to the point where, uh, some, I mean, some of us might not have ever even had a truly, incredibly, 100% nourishing meal to use as a as a foundation to try to compare other meals that we eat, and don't don't even know what that feels like. Um, some of us might not, not have access to nourishing food, never had it in in their lives, and you know we've done a really good job of screwing up um, our ability to understand the reactions we have when we eat certain foods. And I'll give you two great examples. One is we have people in lab coats messing with our food and they know what our senses are. They know what that sensual experience is like when we eat our food and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're playing on these evolutionary um, uh, adaptations to make us eat more potato chips and make us eat more Doritos. And they're putting in different flavors and different things so they can sell more product at the expense of our health. So that's really difficult to try to navigate that. But the other thing is, think, think about this. And, and we've normalized so many things in our food system, it's hard to start to pick these things apart and realize that we're, we've screwed some things up really bad. We, every one of us who's had kids know or seen somebody with kids, we probably don't remember this ourselves, but maybe it was scarring enough that we do. We put them in a high chair. We, we, we put hungry human being, infants or children in a high chair and feed them food and we have to force that food down their throats. And they're crying mm. and they're spitting up and they're throwing the food across the room and we've normalized that to the point to say, oh, well, let's give them more or we punish them for some reason. In what world does that make sense? Mm. <laughs> if you put a hungry human being in a chair and give them food that they are evolutionarily designed to find satisfaction in eating with all of their senses, that should never happen. Do you think there might be a reason why we feed them, you know, cream spinach from a jar that's been, you know, sterilized and we're trying to feed that and, and they don't want to eat it? It makes sense. So what we're doing by forcing them in the chair and continuing to give them this stuff that their entire body is repulsing out of their body is we're teaching them not to listen to their bodies. We're teaching them not to listen to the signals that they're evolutionary, you know. So in, but we're, what we are doing is reinforcing that we should be looking at labeling, we should be listening to the media, we should be hiring people, we should be listening to our doctors. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't listen to our doctors. What I'm suggesting is we are hardwired. Hmm. If we're, in, if we're in tune with our bodies and we put nourishing food in front of us, we are hardwired to make the decision on our own about whether that food should go into our mouths, how much of it we should eat, and when we should stop eating. That's number one. But that's and that, and but here's the larger issue, and, and I know this is getting complicated, but this is really the foundation no, no, I follow. of the book. Okay. One of the things I say early on in the book is 
I've been asking this question my whole life, what we should be eating. And everything I just talked about just now was focused on what we should be eating, you know, answering that question. Other animals don't ask that question because they are in tune with their bodies. They have access to food. They eat this. They do well. They don't eat this. They don't do well. That's great. But humans, here's the problem with the humans. Um, we do have to ask questions about how we should be eating because what we as, as humans have done beginning three and a half million years ago is we created technologies that allowed us to take foods that we are not biologically designed to eat and turn them into something that is safe and nourishing for us to consume through technology, whether it be fire or fermentation or drying or curing or whatever it is, cooking. This is what other animals don't do. What makes us human is that we have outgrown our digestive tracts. We've done this really well. We've created these technologies over millions of years, created a diet that allows us to access all these other nutrients and these foods we're not designed to eat, created technologies that allowed us to introduce them into our bodies in the right way. And because of this influx of amazing food, amazing nutrition in the right state, we supported massive body and brain growth. And our species changed over millions of years on the backs of, this, of these changing diets these technologically supported changing diets. And then all of a sudden, 300,000 years ago, we appear as humans. We appear as humans, fully domesticated animals that are relying on these, these cultural systems and these technologies with these really incredibly inefficient digestive tracts, but these huge nutritional needs. Here we are. Hmm. Other animals eat diets they're designed to consume. Uh, forget our domesticated animals. I mean wild animals. Eat diets they're, they're designed to consume. They only have to ask what question. What should I eat? They are biologically designed to eat certain foods. In, their senses are in tune with that. They do a great job. We ask that same question. What should we eat? And we're getting all these things forced to us all over the place through the media, through the food industry, through whatever – confusing, conflicting signals, and we're trying to answer one question when really we should be asking two. What should I eat and what should I do to that food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible? The what should I eat question is the one I don't think we need to ask. We should, we should be able to be in tune with ourselves to answer that. It's the how should I be eating, which is what we need help with. Mm. And that's what the focus of this book is. Okay, if you're going to eat spinach, you should eat it seasonally and not eat it the rest of the year. If you're going to eat potatoes, let's look at a traditional way mm. to take this incredibly toxic food and detoxify it and, and make it as safe and nourishing as possible. If you're going to eat, um, I, I mean, we can go on. If you're going to eat dairy, we should replicate the process that we had as infant mammals and, and, and ferment it and make it into its safest and most nourishing form and things like kefirs and yogurt and real traditional cheeses and then consume it. So I know this was a roundabout way to answer your question, but again, to reiterate – if we find a way to be in tune with our bodies and, and the signals that our bodies have hardwired inside of it and put nourishing food in front of us, we should be able to answer the questions what we should be eating. You, any one of us can answer that if we get to that place. But we can't do it in a vacuum. We have to also consider how we should be eating. How is that food prepared? And that's the part we, we need help with. And the way that we answer that question I believe, is to get back into our kitchens. If there's mm -hmm. foods that you or your family are eating all the time, find out how they're made. Find them made, they can be made in the most nourishing way possible and either make it yourself or buy that version of the food that's been processed that way. And that's, I think, how, how we get there. 
I'm not saying we reject the uh, information that doctors give us. I'm not saying we reject the information that nutritionists give us because some of that is incredible information. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is we have handed 100% of the power away from us to other people to tell us how we should be eating, and I think we need to get some of that back. Wow. Um, I, have, I have more here, so you cut me off at any point if you need to. I got a few more minutes, okay. and then I got a, a bunch to cook and to do downstairs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we take things into our body through our skin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my brain was just going, again, reading this, thinking like, oh, there's all, there's all these other things connected to food. Like, what would you think about that? Um, and obviously, like, a lot of people lather themselves up with these body washes and things like that that have all sorts of uh, chemicals in them. Do you prescribe to any sort of a philosophy about that, or like, are you or like, I don't know if it's animal-based products, or or do you solely use products that like you've you've vetted before you put them on your skin? <laughs> that is another. You have really good questions today, and you've kind of got me in a corner <laughs> on this one. Um, yeah, we certainly have a philosophy, and our family does, uh, and that is the same with food, that we want to approach things in, in, in the safest, most nourishing, sustainable, and ethical way possible. Um, I will say that we have put a huge focus, and everything is so screwed up mm. that in order to address all of these things in our lives, it takes an incredible amount of not only information, but hard work and research and and, and just sweat and blood and tears to incorporate them into, into our lives. And in some cases, money as well. We can't, we can't um, escape that. I will be completely honest and transparent that we have spent most of our time in the food world. And while there are, I mean, we use Dr. Bronner soap mm, and, yeah. and those sorts of things um, as as sort of a mainstay, but we haven't paid as much attention as we should to things like the laundry detergent that we're using. Mm. So, but um, so I will be honest, and we have a lot of work and growing to do in, in that. And it is, like you said, just as important. I mean, it's, it's very important, I think, for us to understand that um, two things about a lot of things about our own bodies, but one of them is the skin is permeable. Right. Um, there's a lot of ways between the pores in our skin and our nose and our ears and our mouths and all the other orifices that we have, that there are a lot of ways for things to get into our bodies, um, some good, some bad. And at the same time, we need to remember that um, just because something goes into our mouth doesn't mean it goes into our bodies. A lot of it just comes out the other end. So we need to, I think, re-envision our body and our relationship with the world around us. The um, the other thing I want to mention very quickly, though, that I do have a little more experience in as far as cleaning and, and those sort of products go, <clears throat> we exclusively in our house, as far as cleaning, again, back to food, but uh, and food surfaces, only use vinegar. Mm-hmm. We only use distilled white vinegar, um, or it could be any vinegar. We use distilled white vinegar to, to clean our surfaces. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of the chemicals that we have in our kitchens should be nowhere near our food or, or our bodies. Uh, vinegar does a great job. It's super cheap. If you want, you can even stick a couple lemons in there and it'll make it lemony or, or, or what have you. Um, but also if you're spraying and it gets into your food, it's, it's vinegar. Right. <laughs> it's fine. So we, we, we just get some spray bottles from the oh, dollar store and ju- and literally just use vinegar. Oh, I'm going to start doing that. That's cool. Um, I was going to ask about Oaxaca cause you were just there, but it's pretty well documented on your Instagram. And so mm-hmm. people can find the link to that in the player. Um, cause that looked really cool. But something that surprised me in the book, because they're everywhere here in the Northeast, uh, is acorns. Ah! Um, 
I, you know, I grew up as a kid, like we had a, a wagon and we would fill up the wagon with acorns and then like watch, I'm older than I look. We would watch the squirrels go eat the acorns, but the parents are always like, don't put them in your mouth. It's going to kill you. They're toxic. Um, so I wasn't aware of people cooking with acorns and yeah. detoxifying them. That's incredible. So yeah, acorns are, or were, um, more were, but a little bit slower. A mainstay in certain diets. We have them well documented in some Native American diets. We have them well documented in Korean diets. Um, we have them well documented in Sardinian diets. Uh, Whoa! So, and and I'm sure much else, but those are the ones I, yeah. I know of uh, uh, immediately. The problem, the reason I put acorns in there was, first of all, they're a great food resource. Um, but the the story that they tell in understanding how to detoxify them, I think, is is a good story, and it's mm. very easy and accessible to do at home. They have tannic acid. D- depending on the on the ch- uh, the type of oak, they have different levels of tannic acid. Um, small and it's also fairly safe. I mean, I literally know of one person that got hospitalized because of tannic acid poisoning, and I'll, and I'll tell that story in just a minute because it's 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 a it's a it's an important story. But you could take a bite of an acorn and have no problems. In fact, you take a bite of an acorn; it's so um, bitter and astringent that you you don't want to take another bite, mm. which is that's your body telling you this is a food to stay away from unless we do something to it, right? So um, many people listening to this right now would say, oh, okay, fine, your body's telling you not to eat it and there's something, there's, there's a toxin in it, so let's keep it away. But remember, potatoes are the same way, right? As, right? And what we did was we found ways to get around that with potatoes. Some of it was through genetic manipulation with, with, um, with selective uh, uh, farming uh, and some of it was through detoxification, but all wild potatoes are a thousand, I don't know, I don't want to put a number to it, so I don't know the exact number, are a lot more poisonous to you than, a, than an egg corn is. Wow. Um, same thing with um, manioc, which is, has, uh, you know, with cyanide. Um, right, right, right. W- which the detoxified version of that is what they make tapioca out of. So these foods are in our diets. We're just so far removed, we don't realize this. So we take the egg corn, we take a little bite. It's, 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 uh, it's something that doesn't seem very pleasing. The cool thing is the tannic acid is water soluble. So you can take in very, in, uh, with very little work, you have to take the shells off the egg corns, but you take the egg corns. There's a lot of ways to detoxify them, but the way that I like is you take the egg corns, you throw them in a blender with a bunch of water, and you just make soup out of it, right? You get it into the slurry and you've increased the surface area. Um, you allow all, and so then put it in a jar and well, there's a couple ways to do it, but one easy way to do it without much work is put it in a jar and overnight, and then stick it in your fridge and overnight all the egg corn flour will fall to the bottom and the water is gonna be super brown because that's the tannic acid leaching into the water. Gently pour off that water, put some fresh water in there, give it a shake and put it back into the fridge and do that every day or multiple times a day, especially in the beginning. And eventually that water is going to be clear. And when that water is clear, there's no more tannic acid. You can pour that water off and use it immediately or lay it out on a, on a, like a cookie sheet and either dry it in the sun or put it in the oven at a low temperature and dry it as an egg corn flour. And then uh, you can store it and use it in a lot of different ways. Wow. That's really cool. I never knew that. Um, Your classes have been selling out. Your dinners have been selling out. You have a dinner coming up. I read it quickly. Did I see turtle soup on there it? There is turtle soup on it. <laughs> turtles. Turtles, absolutely. Now, the that's a Victorian dinner. Um, we 
what we want to do anytime we do a theme meal, because it's a lot of work for us to turn this place over mm-hmm. and, and do these theme meals, we want them to be incredibly not only nourishing, but engaging and fun, but also educational at the same time. So we've done, and we'll do this one again. It's my favorite one. We do a, a journey through time dinner. It's a it's like it's usually seven courses, and each course is a different time period, uh, starting at three and a half million years ago. And we go through so different. Cool. So uh, that's a great dinner. It's fun. It's educational. It's, it's delicious. It's it's cool. You'll eat foods you never thought you would eat, but you enjoy doing it at the same time, which is neat. Um, we just did a, a, a nose to tail, farm to table duck dinner, um, where over the course, we, what we were doing is is sort of reacting against a lot of the ways we approach not only animals in the grocery store, but also a lot of hunters will do where they'll kill a, a bird and just eat the breast and the rest of it goes mm. to waste. And and I know, and I don't want this to pin this just on hunters to do this. Anybody who's going to the grocery store and only buying chicken breast is supporting that same kind of approach with chickens, right? So um, we're both guilty of it, or both camps are guilty of it. So what we wanted to do was expose people to the the beauty of and uh, the deliciousness and the nourishment of eating completely nose to tail with an animal. So over six courses, each diner ate half a duck. The entirety of half a duck oh, was used so cool. in different courses um, in, in a really fun, you know, wonderful way. And it was, it was I mean, a nice sit down black tie sort of thing yeah. on, on this gorgeous uh, um, uh, wildflower farm. And then this one's a Victorian dinner. The town asked us to do it for their for their Dickens Festival. Mm. And we said, you know what? Yeah, we'll do it, but we're going to do it for real. And we did a lot of research to look at what a, what a typical, um, you know, holiday Victorian Christmas dinner would look like. And uh, we're, we're doing it here. So we have everything so from cool, turtle soups on it um, to geese. We have um, – there, there, there's – there's other meats as well. We have geese. We have um, even sa- something that was called used to be called sloop, but they sassafras tea. Believe it or not, was was part of it. So Whoa. yeah. So we, uh, re, you know, we, we're doing authentic food and authentic drink, and it's gonna be fun. People are dressed up. We're gonna transform this place into a. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I remember as a kid, sassafras leaves like taste like root beer, kind of. The roots. Yep. Yeah. The leaves, believe it or not, are one of the uh, okay. so it, gum, if you go into the spice section in your uh, in your grocery store, gumbo fillet, which is a thickener for uh, you know certain uh, dishes. Um, the name's escaping me. It's got okra in it. What's it called? Um, ah, shoot, jambalaya. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that uh, that's actually made from the powdered sassafras leaves. Ah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna let you run, man. Uh, okay, there's gonna be a link to buy the book. Uh, Again, it's awesome. Your hard work is like so inspiring. So people need to give you a follow on social media because I watch people to like get me up. Um, I'm writing a book right now and it's like whenever I'm feeling, I just like watch other people working hard. I'm like, oh, I'm a baby. I need to work. So um, yeah, just thank you so much for having me back. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 254 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Bill, for reaching out to me and for having me back at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. I didn't even realize that there was an upstairs to that building, so we were able to record this podcast in the silence of the upstairs. And it's such a cool spot because it's got like all this uh, anthropological material and stuff up there. It's really cool. And then I went downstairs, and what did I do? Of course, I bought a bunch of things. My favorite right now and my the favorite of the people around me is um, the every the sourdough everything 
crackers. They're so good. Um, so I love that place. I love talking to Bill. I hope that maybe one day we can do a part three. I'm sure that this is the first of like many published works to come because there's so much more to learn. And he's he has such a good way of, of conveying it and condensing the information into an accessible format. So yeah, he's he's got such a bright future. It's, it's, it's really cool to see. I love when I have people on and they go on to uh, get published or expand their influence and their reach or they go on to win a championship belt as has happened in the past. So that makes me very, very happy. All right, Voyagers, I will try to get one or two more of these out to you before the holidays. Um, so I'll be checking in with you again. Give the podcast a like, a rating, uh, subscribe, tell people about it. If you heard this and you're like, hey, that's interesting, tell people. Going viral is an effective way to get the podcast into more people's ears. And uh, yeah, thank you. Always appreciative of all you. So I'm going to say, as always, please, please, please take care of each other and I will catch you very, very soon. Bye-bye.